Thanks so much for joining us for another OSU Extension Garden Q&A. This session focuses on vegetable gardening in the Willamette Valley and features Benton County Master Gardeners and Special Guests Sue Dominguez, Jennifer Klammer, Cheryl Stratton, Leah Gorman, and Elizabeth Records. This session was recorded live online in early May 2020. Welcome to our veggie gardening Q&A. This is our first evening Q&A in the series and our fourth veggie gardening Q&A so far. And we're really excited um, with Master Gardeners and OSU Extension of Linden and Benton County to be offering this. We have several Master Gardeners and some guests with us tonight. We have Jennifer Klammer and Sue Dominguez and Cheryl Stratton and one or two other folks with Benton County Master Gardeners. And then we have Leah Garden, Leah Gorman with Benton County Master Gardener Association joining us as a guest. So, so welcome. And then I'll give this over to Sue Dominguez to say a few more words about what we're doing this evening. Sue, are you ready? Are we live? We are live, okay. Sue, go for it. Um, hi, um, I, I'm Sue Dominguez, like um, Elizabeth said. So we're um, asking for uh, vegetable garden questions tonight. So um, the four of us that uh, Elizabeth introduced and Elizabeth too might be answering some of your questions. So if you have them, um, you can, I guess, get started. <laughs> I think um, Elizabeth said everything I needed to say. So welcome. <laughs> I see a question from Susan Chambers. Susan would like to know about harvesting basil. That is a topic for a little bit later in the season, but it's something that I think folks in this group can speak to who'd like to respond to harvesting basil. Well, I can talk about how I harvest basil um, one leaf at a time. Um, not always, but sometimes it, um, when I need it, I just go out and pick up however many leaves I need. Um, if I usually don't have tons of basil plants, so maybe I have five, but I keep them going as long as they'll go without um, flowering. I pinch them to make sure that they don't flower. Anybody else? Yep, you that's know, how I do know, it. You know, actually, um, I've had um, basil that was maybe, you know, um, 18 inches high, you know, that was starting to go to seed. And I've had people chop it halfway down in the garden and it still grows back nice and thick. So, mm -hmm. you know, when, when it starts to flower, it's good to like just um, get rid of those flowers as quick as you can and let the um, leaves just keep coming. That, that's when you make pesto. Right. Right. I see a follow-up question from Susan Chambers to clarify what you mean by pinching. That would be sort of a move that's like oh. that, right? To grab off the leaves. Is that what you're speaking of? Right. I'm just pulling it. And I'm also, I'm pinching flowers too. I'm just pulling off the tops of the flowers. So, so grabbing between the fingernails and using your fingers to break that stem or clipping with the scissors. Yeah. When you look at the basil plant, you'll see that there'll be, um, the flower buds will be um, growing there before the flowers open. And so often you can take off um, a the, the first top couple of leaves that are close to that um, flowering spot and, um, and pull that off. Um, and it does make your plant grow more um, horizontally, 
which then makes it bushier and healthier. Um, and if you don't need to use that right away, you could throw it into a freezer bag um, that you keep in your freezer. Um, and that will um, be delicious for cooking later on um, when you don't have fresh basil. I see another question in chat. Um, Angela wants to know how long the chits on potatoes should be before planting and is it better to cover in soil or straw? By chits, are we talking about like the little sprouts that stick out of a potato? That's what I, how I would understand that. Yeah. So Sue, you've planted potatoes a lot, haven't you? Yeah, um, you know, I, um, I just plant, like I buy seed potatoes and I just plant them when I have them. Um, I don't really wait for them to grow. The longer you let those um, eyes or chits grow, um, you know, the, the easier it is to break them off, you know, before you get them planted. So it's kind of better to plant them when they're small. Uh, and then I um, usually use soil or compost to cover them at first. And then later on, as the leaves come up, I start uh, backfilling with um, first compost, but then um, eventually straw for the potatoes. Yeah, I, but you know, if, if, you, if you bought a bag of seed potatoes and all of a sudden you've opened it up and there are a lot of those long sprouts on them, like don't worry that it's been too long, like you'd still definitely go ahead and plant those. You might need a, a little bit deeper in order to kind of have it, to um, place the potato in the bottom of the hole and have that sort of sprout be coming up. Um, and make sure it all gets covered, um, but it'll still grow really well if they've if there's done a fair amount of sprouting in the bag. Great questions all. I see a question from Monica that is about planting according to phases of the moon. That would be more biodynamic gardening, and that's not really something that's in the Master Gardener wheelhouse because Extension doesn't really have research uh, to explain or support that type of gardening. So I'm gonna to go to the next question, um, which is also from Susan. Talk about dealing with pill bugs. So pill bugs are a, a natural uh, way to get compost going. Um, I have not experienced um, pill bugs causing problems in the vegetable garden um, because they're mostly eating decomposing matter. So you shouldn't be seeing pill bugs if you have healthy soil and healthy um, uh, life cycle of plants going on? Um, you can, in my, in my garden, the only thing I've seen is if um, some pill bugs that might want to snack on um, plants that I've started from seed in the ground. So maybe if I planted my beans in there and master gardeners can jump in if you think I'm incorrect, but I have seen them in there. And um, so the way that I've dealt with that is starting um, things in the greenhouse or in um, inside um, that and letting them get a little bigger before planting them in the ground. And that way, um, any insect that's munching on the early plants doesn't have as much chance to get at the, um, at the young tender plants. So I've, I've experienced, uh, I noticed in the chat, there was uh, eating the pill bugs eating green bean starts. I, in, gardens that I've experienced is mostly the slugs. Um, also, I was uh, commenting today, um, Blue Jays last year, uh, I'm getting off topic a little, sorry. Um, Blue Jays ate my green beans. I planted three times. It was very annoying. So I had to cover them. So you, 
yeah, I don't, I mean, and so for any of those things, if you, if you just fill a tray with two inches of soil and sprinkle some green beans in the tray and wait for them to germinate and um, plant them in the ground once they're, they have a cup, you know, they have their, um, their two seed leaves open, um, can kind of skip over that, <laughs> that stage where they're so vulnerable. Another question about pill bugs from Brittany. Uh, Brittany said they had pill bug problems with parsley root and stump. And does this mean that their soil needs something? You know, um, one thing that I found is um, a lot of times the slug traps I use actually collect pill bugs. So um, I've had uh, pill bugs eat the roots of uh, parsley before too. And um, it seems like if I have slug traps around, there'll uh, be a bunch of pill bugs in there and that seems to take care of the problem. And um, beer traps work great. And um, also um, a homemade beer trap or a substitute for beer trap is what I use because I can't afford a lot of beer in my large garden that I grow. So um, I make uh, a version of yeast and sugar and water to attract the slugs and the pill bugs. So a question that came in by email, when growing squashes such as butternut and spaghetti, do you prune the runners that come off of those squash? No. It depends, it depends on what room you have. If it's in a, a tight spot and you can't trellis or do other creative measures, maybe you would trim them, but often flowers grow out further um, depending on the variety. If you have a bush variety, the um, the flowers tend to be closer into the middle, but if you have the vining variety, the flowers can continue down the vine. So by trimming it, you might be limiting your fruit. The only time I've trimmed um, squash, winter squash, is when I was trying to grow a gr giant pumpkin. So I wanted it to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So then you trim it back to one or two pumpkins, and then you know the energy goes towards that uh, growth. There's a question from Antigone. Can you help me figure out how to get rid of little tiny hard black bugs that are all over my arugula? I have some suspicions about what those might be, uh, but I think that you do as well. Flea beetles. Flea beetles. I don't know if you can do anything about them. No. <laughs> some, some people will um, plant um, crop trap crops. And so they'll try to um, plant things that the, the flea beetles like, but they like all the coal crops. And once you get them, it, you just kind of have to write out the season, I think. Um, arugula is great early on. Flea beetles tend to come on later. Um, so, uh, yeah. Although cabbages and other bigger things with bigger leaves, they don't seem to affect as much as the smaller. Elizabeth, do you have just, a strategy? I'm just going to add that I've had pretty good luck using row covers to stop flea beetles and just using like that white reme fabric. It doesn't stop all of them, but I've had some success. It sounds maybe Jennifer, like you've been less successful with it. So it may depend on, yeah, how many you have, or if you can put on that row cover before they start to really multiply. So, so you'll put on the row cover with the first site you see them and then cover everything up? Pretty much, if I have a meaningful amount of it. Right now, like I have four feet of arugula 
just one single row at the base of a P trellis. And there, there's some flea beetle action, but I'm just kind of just letting it go because I only have it in that one small area that's hard to cover. But yeah, if I had a whole bed of arugula and radishes, I would consider covering them with, with remay, like that white fabric that you can get at a, a landscape store or a nursery. I've had some luck, not with arugula, but with um, when flea beetles came in on hardier mm -hmm. plants like broccoli or um, collards, just with a strong stream of water, just knocking things off. I had had, I've had some reduction in how much damage they were doing and also just by, again, waiting it out, like, um, but again, with arugula, that wouldn't probably work as well. Um, and then I've had nasturtiums just get a, like really attacked by flea beetles. And so I wonder whether nasturtiums are one of those crops Crop that you could huh? use to attract them off of your other plants. Yeah. It's for sad sure. for the nasturtiums because they're so pretty and they get so many holes in them, but. Um, yeah, they, they all, they get a lot of aphids too. So it's sad for the nasturtiums, good for everything else. <laughs> I do see a follow-up question, whether neem oil is uh, a pesticide that you could use on flea beetles. To the best of my understanding, flea beetles move around so much that it's hard to get them with something that's sprayed on like that. Um, does anybody else have a thought about it? Yeah, I I do use neem oil, but um, I haven't had much luck with it for flea beetles. I have had great luck with it for aphids, um, especially on if I got aphids on something like um, a young tender tomato start that um, that would would have suffered a lot, but um, but not for unfortunately. But would you? But would you use it on something a leafy green? No. I wouldn't. I, use it I wouldn't either. On something that I'd eat, like arugula, right away, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No. You know, as uh, far as flea beetles too, you might want to just make sure your plant's healthier because then it kind of lives through, like Jennifer said earlier, it kind of uh, outlives the flea beetles. But arugula is such a short-living uh, crop that you know, it doesn't really work for that. But most things, you know, if you could just get the plant really healthy, the mm -hmm. flea beetles seem to be insignificant, so. Mm -hmm. So here's another question from Angela. Have you planted your tomatoes yet or is it too early? Too early. <laughs> yeah, I have not planted my tomatoes yet. Put mine outside. Yeah, so I started hardening mine off because it's going to be so hot on Friday. Um, and I've been watching the nighttime temperatures pretty closely. Um, so I have tomatoes. And after this session, I need to make sure to bring those tomatoes in because um, it's supposed to get down to 40. 40 at night is too cold for tomatoes to be unprotected. You could plant them if they were protected. Um, so again, using that uh, maybe a hoop or a remay or a cardboard box over them at night, but only if they've been kind of transitioned in and out. So hardening off, I'll put them out for a few hours in the sun one day, and then I'll lengthen that a little longer, and then I'll um, keep them out later in the evening and bring them in. And then if I see that it's pretty much going to be 50 degrees at night, 
um, then I feel a lot more comfortable about putting out tomatoes or high 40s at least, not low 40s. Yeah, I, I think some of it depends on how much, um, like how many tomato plants are you going to grow and how much energy do you have to baby them as you put them out there. You know, people come up with all sorts of protective strategies to, I mean, I'm sure you can find these online to keep them warm. And I know people who swear by it and who love taking care of three tomato plants. In, in, but if you're growing a, a, a larger number of plants, it's just, they'll, you'll, your plants will do really well and produce lots of tomatoes for you if you plant them later in the month um, or even into June. And you can um, get tomatoes a little earlier than by choosing varieties of tomatoes that, um, that produce a little earlier. So that sort of combination, um, you can get very healthy plants. You know, besides the air temperature, the um, soil temperature is really important to consider with tomatoes too, because um, especially for things like blossom end rot, um, if the soil temperature is too cold, the plant won't, um, you know, won't take up as much calcium as it should, and um, it, you could deal with blossom end rot later. So it's, there's advantages of waiting a little bit longer for that um, soil to warm up along with the air temperature. I see a follow-up question from Meredith about what are the nighttime temperature minimums that are okay for outdoor planting of tomatoes? And I can look up something and put that in the chat with some numbers, but if anyone knows uh, a ballpark. So it, it depends on the variety. Like uh, There is a variety called Oregon Spring and, and some of the Canadian or other varieties that can go colder, but generally I wait till upper 40s at night. And I see that upper 40s are coming. Yes. <laughs> I don't That's know if they'll last. No, uh, but I'm going to plant this weekend. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hedge. So I did find something from Ohio State University um, that has some numbers. And again, this is in an area of the country where it can get much colder, but uh, this should be sort of ballpark for you. Can um, I answer that question about blossom end rot? Yeah. And show the slide that I, I um, put in earlier? Yes, Sue, let me bring the slide up for you. Okay. Um, what I wanted to say is um, blossom end rot uh, happens a lot on tomatoes. Um, one of the things to do with the blossom end rot is um, to look for varieties that are less susceptible to it because there are some varieties that um, don't get it as often as others. But what will happen is you'll get your tomato and on the bottom side of your tomato, away from the stem side, um, you'll see a spot like this. And, um, and you, you could get that on um, other things too. You could get it on squash, you could get it on um, peppers. But when you get it on tomatoes, it's um, a lack of calcium. And the calcium, um, you know, you could have enough calcium in your soil and you could still get blossom end rot. So it's uh, somehow the, tomato isn't, um, you know, uh, sucking up the calcium into the plant. So this is what happens. Um, that tomato is totally edible still. You just cut off the blossom end rot and you just eat it. You know, anyway, there's, there's nothing wrong with eating it, but it doesn't look very nice. 
um, for a tomato. Um, the thing about the calcium uptake is um, to make sure the pH of your soil is uh, correct. So um, you can get a pH test uh, done at mo most local nurseries do them, but um, and there's kind of cheap kits that can check uh, pH of your soil. But if your uh, pH is off, sometimes that calcium isn't going to be sucked up into your plant. And also, if the um, the temperature in the um, in the soil, like I said earlier, isn't um, warm enough, you'll um, find more blossom end rot. So those cold years that we get where it gets really cold at night and you planted your tomatoes out, you might see more blossom end rot. It's really a pretty common thing. Um, one thing that I've done before is um, kind of in mid-season, I've, um, well, one thing is when I plant the tomatoes, I usually take a handful of bone meal and put it in the ground along with my organic fertilizer that I use. Um, and I also, um, like in mid-year, uh, mid-season of the tomatoes, sometimes I'll take a diluted um, lime, you know, lime and water mix and uh, water the tomatoes with it. And that actually seems to help a lot. Um, those few tomatoes, they get it. So, so hopefully that answered your question. Uh, just And just to reinforce what you were saying about varieties of tomatoes, it seems like blossom end rot happens a lot to when people are growing paste tomatoes for canning. Um, but there are other varieties of tomatoes that are thick-walled and good for canning, like some of the heart-shaped tomatoes um, that have some of the good qualities um, without as much blossom end rot. So it is worth it to experiment with varieties. So I see another question that came in over email. And here's a question. It's also my first year growing watermelon and honeydew. Is there anything specific to know about growing these melons, watermelon and honeydew? So I usually start melons um, both indoors, like now. Um, I've recently planted um, some seeds in four inch pots in, indoors um, with good light. It's an unheated greenhouse. Um, but then in three weeks when they're ready to put outdoors, I'll, I'll carefully um, take them out of the containers because you don't want to disrupt the roots too much. Um, but I'll also plant in three weeks, I'll plant seeds outside also, because sometimes they don't come up inside or they're slow or they get shocked. And usually at the time there's actually producing melons, there's no difference between the plants. So I don't, I try to always save some seeds for now and for later. Uh, melons are another really warm, um, warm weather crop. Um, so I don't put those in until um, later May. Jennifer, do you use things like black plastic underneath the melons to try to heat things up? Or are you able to grow them without that extra? Um... So um, I garden in kind of a special place. We have raised beds that are um, made out of highway guardrails, so they <laughs> absorb me very well. So I do, say, uh, I do have to say my uh, ground temperature in those raised beds gets very warm. I have not tried the black plastic. Anybody else? This is Elizabeth and I have a couple of thoughts to add quickly. Um, choosing a variety of melon that's well suited for this area for me has made a big difference in the success and sweetness of my melons. Getting um, seeds that are 
have a variety that's supposed to be especially good for the Willamette Valley. So if you look around, you can find some local seed companies that have melons um, that are more adapted to this area. And then one other thing that I've found with melons is that voles or rodents can burrow into the underside of the melon and scoop out all the good stuff. And then you're left holding the empty shell. Uh, so just kind of keeping an eye out for those critters and doing what you can to reduce cover for them around your melon patch. I use black plastic too when I grow melons and I tend to grow the smaller watermelons. They seem to do better than the large ones like you get from Hermiston or something. Yeah. So we have a question. Oh, go on. No, this is a, a, a Sue slide. Next question. Okay. <laughs> the, the next question is from someone who's a pretty new gardener. And they say, I'm trying spinach right now. I'm seeing something translucent, whitish, almost sand looking on the underside of some of the new leaves. Can you tell me what this is and should I be worried about it? So Jennifer, you think it's um, leaf miners? Is that, that what you, okay. Um, there is a leaf miner slide. <laughs> so so in um, the crops um, like spinach, uh, chard, Swiss chard and, um, and beets, a lot of times you'll find uh, leaf miners and um, there's actually an insect that goes in between the layers of the leaf, like, you know, the top and the bottom of, of a leaf, and will go in inside that and kind of make places like this picture shows, um, where um, it just kind of, eventually that will get kind of crispy, but at first, you know, it's just kind of, um, um, just it looks like that, I guess. <laughs> but um, they're leaf miners, and those crops for sure get a lot of that. Um, I find the best thing to do with that is to just trim those leaves off and put them in the yard debris um, compost, you know, that goes away from your house, not into your compost pile, and just keep trimming them when you see them. And um, it seems like if you do that, you could kind of outnumber the um, leaf miners and they don't kind of get out of hand. I think they actually um, overwinter in the soil. Um, so if you're, um, you know, if you're rotating crops, that really helps uh, kind of reduce them. But you know, you'll often see this this time of year, it's just starting. Great. So we have a question about strawberries. Uh, my strawberries are looking awesome right now. What do I do to make sure the bugs don't get them? It's a good time to fertilize strawberries if you haven't yet. Um, usually it's good to do it like three times in the spring, you know, when they're getting started and there's a lot of growth. So um, like April, May, June, maybe fertilize them with, um, um, I use organic fertilizers, but um, that helps keep I'm, them healthy. I'm wondering if Antigone is talking about the berries themselves, how they get chewed on sometimes. Uh, the or squirrels chew mine. <laughs> oh no. I see them. <laughs> <laughs> Very sad. That is sad. What do you do to protect them? <laughs> well, I've, I've got them caged on the top and the sides because it's just infuriating to look out the window and see the squirrel with the little strawberry in its closet and it doesn't even eat the whole thing. It just takes a few bites and that's it. And unlike blossom end rot, I'm not going to eat the rest of that strawberry. Yeah. So one creature that I find can 
bother my strawberries or slugs and especially like cleaning up debris underneath the strawberry plants if they're grown closely together um, can help deter slugs in my experience. But often, yeah, I've bitten into a strawberry only to find that a slug got there first and it's not really what I want to put on my shortcake. <laughs> so I see uh, another question that looks like, uh, let's see, we'll come back to Corrine's question. Patty has a question. I thought I had tuned in to an earlier question regarding a worm that is very wiry and tough and seems to have many short legs. They multiplied in my carrots over the winter. How can I control these in a green way? Wire worms aren't, don't have legs. Um, the only thing I could think of that has legs would be like a millipede or centipede or something like that. So I'm not quite sure. Um, you don't have a picture of it, do you? <laughs> if it's wire worms, um, one thing that I read about them is it's really good to grow carrots um, in an 18-inch uh, deep bed and up off the ground 18 inches, and it really helps the wire worms not um, invade your carrots. But uh, rotating crops also really helps, too. So from Corrine, we have uh, a question. For the first time this year, I grew my own starts, and I usually buy them at nurseries. How do you know when they're ready to be planted in the soil? And then Leah had sent a message to Corrine asking, what kinds of vegetables are you starting? And Corrine responded, broccoli, squash, pumpkin, cantaloupe, pea pods, and cilantro. And the, and the reason that I asked is um, depending on the vegetable, you may want it to be a little bit um, farther along um, com compared to some other vegetables. So for example, when you're growing broccoli, what I will do is I'll start, I'll start the broccoli um, in some light seed start mix. And then when they have um, at least um, the first leaves that come out are called the seed leaves and you'll see there's one little pair of leaves that those first two leaves are the seed leaves. Then the next two leaves that come out, those are true leaves. And so um, when the broccoli have at least one pair of true leaves, I'll probably pot them up into a little more regular potting soil. Um, but I'll want the broccoli to have um, two to four of those true leaves. Um, and bees started to be look a little bigger and tougher before I would put them out. Um, it also depends on the weather, but this is a perfectly good time of year to put um, broccoli out and have it be happy. Same thing for squash or, uh, I mean, for cabbage or um, other um, um, coal crops. Um, but the squash and the pumpkin, um, and the cantaloupe, um, they're big seeds. I'll plant them in a four inch, I'll start them in a four inch pot. And once they have their, um, their even their first set of, um, of uh, first set of uh, true leaves, I will put them out. Um, I, if they get, they grow so fast that they're, if, if um, they could very easily have their roots be constrained if they got too big in the pot. So it's nice to be able to take them out um, and sort of gently place them 
in the soil while they're um, while they still only have that first set of true leaves. Jennifer, you kind of do something similar. Yep. Um, and then um, cilantro is another one where it's pretty. Um, it's its roots are a little bit. Uh, its roots are a little bit tender. Um, <laughs> so. Um, often I just even start my cilantro in the ground outside. Um, I'll just plant it out, you know, put some seed out in a, in a row in the garden. Um, but if I am transplanting it, um, I'll just try to be kind of gentle as I um, transplant it in the ground. So cilantro, um, I'm already taking out the cilantro that overwintered and came up by itself because I sprinkled the seeds in. I was lazy. I was really messy and let them go to seed last um, summer. And so then I just left the, shook it out and left the seeds and I had amazing, I mean, I've had them for a couple months. We've had cilantro going. Um, so that's been really fun. So to keep cilantro going, you really need to do a succession planting of cilantro. There are varieties that are slow, slow bolting varieties, but once once it starts setting the flowers, um, the quality of the cilantro is not as good. I prefer the, the smaller leaves. Um, so I try to seed out a little bit at a time um, over, you know, every time I remember, you know, every three weeks or so, I'll try to put out a little, a few more seeds out. So as I'm pulling out the older variety or the older plants, then I still have some going. And then I'll also add one more thought, uh, just that if you like coriander, you can let those cilantro go ahead and make coriander seed. So often if I'm lacking coriander in my spice cupboard, I will let the old batch of cilantro make those little round seeds and harvest them and then just be planting a new batch for the leaves. And then peas, um, it's peas grow better in cooler weather and once it gets very hot out, they have more trouble. So we're hit, we're if you haven't planted out peas already, you may be pushing it on um, on running a little late for that. Um, but when I do plant them, if I do start them inside, I usually have maybe like four to maybe six inches at the most um, of before I tall, before I plant them out. Earlier, we had a question that was trying to identify this um, insect that is gray in color and curls up. And I want to take the opportunity to share a picture of what I think it might be uh, and see if this is the critter. Uh, but a master gardener trainee, Wendy, had these in her garden. She did a little write-up about this uh, that I'm going to show you here. But yeah, you can take a look and see if this is the creature that you found. Um, Wendy says, also known as chicken treats, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and when they're in the, the pupil stage, they make this little mahogany colored thing with a weird little tail that wiggles around. Uh, so that's also, also a cutworm. But yeah, we have some resources from the Pacific Northwest Insect Management Handbook that I can share in the chat and afterwards about how to deal with these if you look and this is the insect that you have. Elizabeth? Yes. I have some basil sitting right here beside me that I didn't grow that I bought. Nice. I saw a question about pinching those leaves. Oh, yeah. I can show you. 
you should, and you should also narrate what you're doing for those that are listening in, but don't okay. have the visual. Okay, so um, I got this basil. I think I got it in a, a kind of a CSA box probably two weeks ago. One thing I didn't do was put it in the refrigerator because it'll turn black. The leaves will turn black and you'll be very sad. So I put it in, I, uh, oh, look, I've got roots. Um, <laughs> I didn't notice. I um, cut it when I got it and put it in water. And this is my beautiful basil that I keep on the kitchen windowsill. And it smells so good. It smells like summer. And if I want to pinch a leaf, in fact, I think I pinched a leaf and ate it the other day just for fun. Um, can you see? the i just pinch a leaf hey cheryl can you do that one more time but bring it a little closer to your camera i saw you but i didn't quite see your basil <laughs> okay well now you can see can you see my basil really great okay here's a big leaf oh that's my hand i'm just pinching with my thumbnail and if you look at the tops of these you can see baby leaves coming on. Can you see it, Elizabeth? And that's where those flowers are gonna come. And like Leah said, once you pinch the flowers, then you're gonna get branching. And you're gonna be really happy until the slugs come. And then one day you'll go out there and that'll be that. But anyway. I see yeah. a question from someone asking for you to show the flower of the basil. So if you could even grab one of those off and just stuff it right into your webcam. Yeah, I um, don't. And hold it nice and close. I don't see any flowers. I just see baby leaves, but that's where the, right at that tip is where the flowers are going to be. Nice. Thank okay. you. That was a good visual. I love that. Okay. I, so we, and I top it off with water every day. So I'm seeing another uh, question from Billy. Do you have any favorites to pair together when planting? I'm hearing some silence and I'm wondering if the question <laughs> well, is like favorite, favorite what's like favorite flowers that attract beneficial insects with vegetables that need those beneficial insects. That might be a possible example is kind of what I'm thinking. That um, you can plant um, like a lot of um, flowering flowers, you know, flowering uh, plants, like um, alyssum is a really good one to plant in your garden. Sunflowers attract a lot of um, bees and um, like uh, pollinators and stuff. Um, cosmos is a really good plant to put in your garden. Mar um, marigolds are really good to plant near tomatoes. Um, there's um, borage is a really good pollinator plant for your garden. So there's a lot of things with flowers that are really good um, to put in your garden um, that attract um, yeah, a lot of beneficial insects. And I found um, out that hops is almost like a breeding ground for ladybugs. So it's a really good thing to have in your garden, except you need space for hops. They take over. <laughs> so I really like to uh, grow perennial herbs um, as well as the basils and things. 
um, the perennial, like the thyme is already starting to flower. Uh, the rosemary flowers very early, so that my rosemary is already done blooming. Um, but you know, for mason bees and other um, natives that come out early, it's, it's nice to have um, the, the woody shrubby things that um, come back every year. Uh, other, other things not woody, herbaceous, but perennial um, are oregano and um, chives. So they all have different kinds of flower shapes and all um, encourage different beneficial insects. I like to take those types of perennial um, herbs and flowers and plant them around the base of my fruit tree because it's a place where I'm not trying to dig up and also put my annual crops. Um, and then I, um, when I plant my annual, annual um, garden, I tend to think a lot more about sunlight and spacing when I put my plants in, um, like where is there, where is there the most sun for those plants like um, tomatoes or peppers or, or corn that just need a lot of sun and maybe use my shadier spots for things like lettuce or things that could maybe get by with a little bit less sun. I see that Amy has her virtual hand raised. Amy, do you want to unmute and ask your question? Oh, yeah. Um, I was actually wondering um, if any of you know about growing um, Chinese wild yam. Do you know? Do you know I, um, yeah. I have a bunch I grew last year and they went to seed and there's a bunch of little like tubers, but um, the roots weren't super big. They were kind of small and tough. And so um, if there was any, like, I don't know if you knew much about that. <laughs> That's a great question. I don't personally know that much about Chinese wild yam, but we can do some research and circle back with you. Okay. Yeah, I, I tried doing some research and then um, I just got some contradictory kind of thing. So I was just, yeah, throwing that out there if you knew. Thanks for your question, Amy. I'm going to move on to another question that came in through email. Um, and the question is, what kind of fertilizer do you use for an organic garden and how often do you use it? I could take that question if you want. <laughs> um, so when I plant my um, garden, I use organic fertilizer, you know, right in the beginning when I'm planting. Um, so usually I'm digging a hole and uh, putting the fertilizer in the hole. And, you know, like I was talking about tomatoes, I'll put fertilizer, uh, like a complete uh, vegetable fertilizer in the hole. And then I'll um, put a handful of bone meal in the hole that I'm um, growing the tomato in. And then um, sometimes uh, later on in the season, or sometimes when I transplant and things don't look like they're you know kicking in really quickly, I might use something like a fish uh, fertilizer to water the plants like, like for a few weeks to kind of get them to be really vigorous and start growing and stuff, you know, because that transplant shock that they have. Um, it's uh, good to, um, like if you're gonna uh, plant a row of something to maybe dig a trench and put some fertilizer in the trench. Um, I don't know if you know about the territorial seed 
uh, company in um, from uh, Cottage Grove in Oregon, but they have um, a catalog that um, is free if you order it online. But um, like some of the nurseries around town will sell it for 75 cents, but it's a really good um, guide for using fertilizer. It'll tell you how much organic fertilizer to use when you're planting certain things out. So it's a really um, good resource to use um, just to you know, know how much and when to fertilize. Sometimes um, uh, when um, the leaves are developing and you're trying to get a plant to grow, you might want to um, give it a little bit more of a boost and sprinkle fertilizer around the plant or use something like a liquid fertilizer, fish or seaweed or something. Um, and then, um, and if you're really uh, concerned about organic gardening, you might want to look for that OMRI sign. I didn't uh, pull it up for this um, session, but it's um, O-M-R-I. So it's um, or Organic Material Review Institute looks at um, all the the um, the fertilizer that you'll find, and um, they'll register it as um, certified organic. So if you want to, like sometimes you'll read uh, things and you can't really tell. You know, it might say it's natural or made with organic ingredients or something. But if you see that Omri sign, O M R I, then um, it's certified organic. So it's um, a good way to know what to use. Um, I'll also put fertilizer in sometimes um, as flowers are developing in a plant and also um, as fruits start um, developing in a plant. Um, but sometimes um, it doesn't need quite so much fertilizer um, as all that. But so sometimes we have a follow-up follow question from Stephanie. Any suggestions for good fertilizer that does not use animal parts? Well, you know, when so Sue is talking about complete organic fertilizer and, you know, there are a lot of recipes out there of how to make your own complete organic fertilizer. Um, and some of those recipes have options for um, ingredients that are either animal based or plant-based so you know what the you know one of the major components of the of the complete organic fertilizer is going to be something that gives your plants nitrogen and so sometimes you'll see that those have fish meal in them to be um, a major source of nitrogen but also you can use seed meal um, like the, the I'm using like a, a flax meal in my or fertilizer this year, which is actually very high in the nitrogen part. Um, I think it's like a nine or something. Um, and then, um, and then the second thing that's in the that complete organic fertilizer is usually some sort of source of phosphorus. And so you can use um, an animal source like fish bone meal, but you can also use phosphate rock um, as a non-animal component there. Um, and then often there'll be some sort of like lime in there, which is also um, not animal product. So you can make most of the components um, without, um, without having to use an animal, um, an animal source in there. If, I know that there are some people who are vegans who also want their um, ingredients in their gardening to be um, not animal based. I know the company Down to Earth actually sells a vegan um, all-purpose fertilizer for vegetables, um, and that's out of Eugene, um, and they sell it locally in nurseries around here. 
great answers. I'm going to try and get in a few more questions as we're getting into the last uh, 10 minutes of our official hour. Uh, so we have a question that came in through email about hardening off seedlings without a greenhouse and in a small space for an apartment dweller. Any tips or recommendations? Yeah, you don't need a greenhouse at all for hardening off. Um, most plants are, if they've been raised in a greenhouse, you're trying to wean them off of the greenhouse conditions. Um, so the key parts of that are to um, kind of decrease your watering gradually and increase the light and the range of temperature gradually. So I'll do that um, for uh, like in hours or chunks of time. Um, and I try to put um, the plants out, not in bright sunlight right away. I'll try to put them in an area that kind of gets either dappled light or on the edge of the uh, underneath the deck kind of stuff. So it might only get the morning light. Um, so it's not getting the strong midday light um, uh, until it's been out there for a while. So I'll put them out a few hours one day, bring them inside, um, put them out a little longer and uh, maybe not water them so much. The first time I put them out, I definitely water them very well. Um, because you don't want them to go into shock multiple things um, and gradually increase the time outside and then if it's going to be a warm night leave them outside in a protected area um, uh, for the first night out yeah i have accidentally done more harm than good trying to harden off plants <laughs> i'll put them outside thinking i'm going to give them just a smidge of extra light and the next thing you know they look really unhappy so uh it does it 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 has to be something where you can pay have enough time to pay attention i've also gotten up like 11 at night and just going ah, and get out of bed <laughs> i was like what are you doing my babies are outside so just trying to make people feel uh, understand that we've all made we oh, yeah. we do, we try to do our best but <laughs> it's impossible to overdo it <laughs> so we have another question um about what seeds are good seeds to start this month and i know that leah created a slide just on this topic so i have that queued and i'm going to to share it for leah and maybe others to talk about as well and i think that we've hit on some of the um at some of these um topics already but um i've just been having a lot of people around me ask um what you can still do this month. And this is actually a great month for starting a lot of plants. And there are a lot of um, planting charts. Um, the, the territorial seed catalog that um, Sue mentioned is one source of a planting chart, but you can really um, have, there's a wide range of things you can start from seed um, outside right now. Um, and also um, there are a number of things that it is, as we touched on, a little early. Um, so thing, there are a number of things that if you're going to start them now, like watermelon or squash, um, corn, you probably are going to want to start them in the greenhouse um, or even wait a bit um, before um, starting them outside. Um, and like, Leah, I apologize. I reversed the order of your slides. <laughs> it's all right. And likewise, um, uh, a lot of people are asking about, is it, um, is it time to plant my tomatoes? Is it time to plant my, um, my peppers and my eggplant and my squash and my corn? And um, it is still a little early for, um, for a number of things. Um, there are um, plants that we've talked about how um, there are plants that if you are going to plant them out, um, 
in the next couple of weeks, you might consider having some sort of protection of them, whether that's um, um, putting them under some plastic, um, under a hoop, uh, like a cloche, um, maybe putting um, some remake cloth over them just to give them a, a little bit um, more protection. Um, and then it's all right to wait. Um, a lot of these plants are just going to be a lot happier if you wait a week or two or even three. <laughs> oh, and uh, I did extension service does have a month by month what you should be doing in your garden guide, which can be really helpful to know what to focus on right now. Um, I noticed that for May, it says May is a great time to be thinking about your irrigation systems and how you're going to water all these plants. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's a good thing to do with that with those beautiful days outside when maybe your plants aren't quite ready to go in, but you want to be ready for your whole garden to thrive. Um, figure out how you're going to get your watering systems put together. That's a great resource, Leah. I'm glad you mentioned the calendar of gardening activities, and that can be found uh, both on Extension's website and in the growing magazine that comes with the newspaper for anyone who gets the newspaper, uh, the Gazette Times or the Albany Democrat Herald, uh, that is. But yeah, I can post a link to that in the chat as well. So we have one more question from Patty, and I think we may have to, to wrap it up with this one, maybe just have room for one more. So Patty wants to know, is there any fertilizer you could suggest to beef up the size of my asparagus? My patch is probably 10 years old. So I, I grow asparagus, and um, usually I fertilize for, uh, asparagus really early in the season because I'm harvesting it now. Um, so I usually um, cover my asparagus bed with uh, straw or compost for over the winter, and then I try to be early enough and move it off and, um, and put, you know, some nice compost down and fertilize it early, like probably back in February or so. Um, I think it's a little late now to fertilize it, but um, it probably wouldn't hurt to do something like a liquid uh, fish fertilizer or something like that to help it a little bit. Um, but um, I don't know um, about, I mean, I know it takes a few years for the asparagus to actually get, um, like you're actually harvesting a bunch of it. But um, if it's 10 years old, I never had an asparagus, asparagus bed that old to um, know um, what happens to it if you, um, yeah, it, you know, maybe it gets old and you have to replant it like, um, you know, strawberries. I'm not really sure about that. But. So many good questions tonight. I wanted to say thank you to everybody in our final couple of moments and for sort of a, a cool thing to share as we wrap up. Uh, Cheryl Stratton, who's here with us tonight, prepared a couple of slides to share about lettuce bowls. And if you've never grown a lettuce bowl, this looks kind of like a salad, but it's actually a way to grow lettuce in a small space in a container. So something really great for, for a patio or a sunny windowsill. Uh, just to add some extra greens to your life. So I'm going to share this image and let Cheryl talk a little bit about lettuce bowls. And even if you have a big garden space, I hope you'll try this because it just looks really fun and cool. Okay. Well, there's a lettuce bowl. Um, and it doesn't have to be a bowl. It can be a pot. Um, 
the first year I lived here, I had a lettuce bowl that I, I didn't plant it. I bought it at the farmer's market and I would bring it inside every time we left home until one day when I forgot and came home and the deer had eaten the lettuce down to the soil. So, um, uh, we have a fence now, but anyway, um, so this is a really fun thing to do with leaf lettuce. It's, uh, it's a great thing to do with kids because it, uh, the seeds are really tiny. You don't plant them very deep. You just broadcast them in the bowl and water them. And you get these little leaves and they start to grow and you can, you can see it day by day. Um, and then you can harvest whatever you need for that eat or that lunch or that dinner. Um, really easy. You can uh, plant new bowls. You can, you know, after a couple weeks, you can do that. Um, they don't have to be in full sun and you don't have to use a lot of soil because you can use a shallow container. Um, and you, but you don't want to use garden soil. You want to use more a lighter potting soil type thing with them. But they're really great and they're really fun. And I like to go outside and harvest and then eat. Thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> and there's, there's the the cute kitty to tell us that it's the end of our hour together. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing so many great questions. We wish you success with your gardening. In closing, we'd like to let you know that we're OSU Extension Master Gardener volunteers and friends, and we're going to be doing these at least a couple of times a month for at least the next few months, um, helping new gardeners get connected to the resources they need, tested and trusted resources from Extension, to grow a really good garden and feed yourself and your loved ones. You can reach out to us anytime. You can find us online wherever you found out about this event and ask us questions um, by email, by phone, or with the Ask an Expert platform online. So once again, thank you so much and have a really good rest of the evening and a good couple of weeks of gardening. Thanks for joining us and check out more great gardening information online at extension.oregonstate.edu.